ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Josh Nyland is here today. Josh is a chef originally from the Hunter region in New South Wales. He spent much of his childhood living through a protracted life-threatening illness and as soon as he could, he trained as a chef. And now Josh is known all over the world. And that's partly because Josh can convince you that everything you thought you knew about the presentation, the cooking and the eating of fish is wrong. Josh's philosophy is use the whole fish from head to tail, just like we do with other animals. He says that fish can be aged to delicious effect. And he says, don't forget the offal, because up to 55% of a fish can be offal. And he turns the eyeballs of dory into chips. He turns fish fat into a kind of caramel and tuna loin into pepperoni. And he makes barn me with kingfish liver pate and a mortadella out of kingfish milt, which is fish sperm. Josh Nyland has set up several hatted restaurants in Australia, and he's now about to open another one in Singapore. And in 2020, Josh won the James Beard Award, which is like the Oscars of food writing, for his book, The Whole Fish Cookbook. Hi, Josh. Welcome. G'day. What a start. There you are. That's you, isn't it? Were you thinking, was that me? He was talking yeah, about Yeah, I was just thinking to myself, this is going to need some padding. It's going to need some context. <laughs> Did you go fishing a lot when you were a kid? Well, I think mum, mum specifically used it as a tool to get us out of the house. I think when we, we started to run up the walls and, and uh, get a bit restless, she'd take us down to the Hunter River in Maitland and we, we'd go fishing. And the, I suppose the interesting thing was looking at the way mum would make the bait. You know, she would take flour, Vegemite and some water and push it into this damper and we'd go down to we'd go down to the Hunter River with a bucket and a, a hand line and she'd teach us how to bait the hook with this sticky dough and then do a bit of a lasso <laughs> technique and you'd have to avoid, you know, getting the getting the line caught in the tree that hung over the, the river. And if you got the line in the water then then you'd be targeting whiting and flathead but often catch turtles and eels and oh, some boots. So yeah. I have to ask damper with Vegemite in it works as fish bait? Surprisingly, we caught a few flathead with it, but yeah, I think the eels enjoyed eating that a bit more. So, <laughs> so once you'd caught the flathead, yeah. Um, yeah. how would she cook it? Well, the practice was, and, and I suppose fascinating and also slight, slightly scary at a young age to watch mum catch this fish, you know, you'd come up, she'd She'd give it a good whack over the head with a, you know, a thong or something that was close by, pop it in a bucket and take it home. And the idea was is that you'd get the best knife out of the drawer, you'd go out to the garden tap, you'd give it a good scale, let it all go outside uh, and then start the tap running and, you know, you'd strip the organs out uh, under the running water and she'd push it into the garden and tell us it was good fertiliser and then go ahead, dust it in way too much flour and then pop it in a fry pan and make it brown. And that was, I suppose the fresh fish experience of, um, of Maitland uh, and, and what it felt like to, to eat something that was incredibly fresh. Yes, it was overcooked, but, you know, you can remember how sweet it was and, and just genuinely it was a nice experience, even if you did have to pull the bones out of your teeth and, you know, watch your sister choke on a, <laughs> on a fish bone uh, from time to time. But, um, yeah, it, it was nice. But besides that, it was tin tuna, tin salmon and the occasional white anchovy. That was, that was fish to me. I think most people today, unlike our grandparents, are quite squeamish 
about food and where it comes from. Do you yeah. think that um, inoculated you, if that's the word, against being squeamishness, watching your mum gut a fish yeah. bottle? Yeah, I think, well, it was nice to be exposed to it, absolutely, from seeing something in a live state through to, to, through to cooked on a plate. There was a certain uh, reverence uh, and, and idea that it starts somewhere rather than just being pulled out of a packet. Um, and to grow up with grandparents that formerly of a dairy farm and, and knowing that, you know, cream goes to butter and those sorts of things, like we're never exposed to hunting or, or, or anything like that, but there was an understanding that there was a pumpkin cart in Maitland where you'd go get your pumpkins because they'd just been pulled out and there was cornfields and things like that. So so we weren't uh, detached and removed from where fresh food was from. Yeah, and you pull fresh vegetables and fruit out of the ground that's given nutrients by putrefaction, correct. by the putrefaction of fish guts. <laughs> yeah, correct. And um, yeah, no, it, it was enjoyable. But I mean, we, we were very much a meat and three veg uh, family. And I mean, the, the fancy restaurant experience might have extended to Mr. Seafoods on a Friday night in East Maitland. Uh, and then the Endeavour Chinese restaurant uh, on the <laughs> Pacific Highway, just, just near our house. So um, yeah, like it, it, there wasn't too much uh, high-end Dining. What was uh, your family life like for you as a kid in yeah. in, in Brand Maitland? <clears throat> uh, well, dad dad was a tax agent uh, and secretary, well, a, a tax agent and bookkeeper, and mum did secretarial and bookkeeping work for him. And it was wonderful to have parents that uh, were always at home. So there was never a. I wonder who'll pick me up from school today. I wonder if dad will be home yet. They were always around and they were always there. And dad was uh, the coach of my cricket team, uh, and. Mum would always, you know, do the rounds on a weekend and make sure sister got netball, I got soccer, and all the all the boxes were ticked. So, yeah, it was it was a really beautiful place to grow up. And the the kids that went to the preschool went to the primary school that then went to the same high school. And yeah, we we're able to ride the bike to school and you know come off and graze your knees a few times going down a, a hill too big. And yeah, it, it was beautiful. I really enjoyed uh, growing up there. And it was half an hour from a beach, so we weren't surfy. Newcastle kids, we were, you know, r- rough and ready, grazed knees, lots of sport, that kind of kid. So, yeah. What led you to write to Don Bradman as a kid? Yeah, I, well, I was fascinated that I, when asking my grandma and grandpa, uh, you know, to, well, I think it stemmed from a love of cricket, firstly, and and having an uncle who who played, you know, represented, well, cult cold cricket for New South Wales and you know my dad was I think his nickname was Iron Gloves Nyland because uh, he was a wicket keeper. Um, <laughs> Look there, out, there here comes the... Iron Gloves Nyland. <laughs> yeah that's right and um, you know the you know all of those wonderful stories like I mean there's so many good crickets. Dougie Walters the dasher from Dungog you know a lot of my mum's side grew up in Dungog um, and you know Don Bradman was was one of those figures that I, I read everything that I could possibly read about him because I was hell bent on being a cricketer that was something that I really wanted to do and I found out that we were loosely related to him uh, in some way along the line and I thought well I'm, I'm gonna send him a send him a good old-fashioned letter and, and, and did he, you get a good reply yeah, he did it he, wasn't he, one of those kind of dear applicant no, sort of replies was it <laughs> no, no it wasn't from his EA it right. was um it was a genuine you know beautifully um you know written um letter that came back to me. So I was very spoiled um, to, to interact with him uh, and, and not so much on Instagram, but, but in, a, in a very gentlemanly way. Um, 
so cricket, cricket was an important part of growing up and, you know, I, I progressed into a lot of different grades, uh, got, got a century. Dad's best score in cricket was 101 not out. And uh, mum called him when I was on 98 on a 45 degree day in Maitland. And she said, you probably want to get down to the park so that you can see him get his, get his hundred. And so dad comes down and, you know, I hit, I hit the runs to get me to a hundred, the last ball of the game. And uh, I look over at dad and he's shaking his head, looking at me going, don't you, don't you go past that 101. Iron Gloves Nylon yeah. record, so, right? Yeah. So I pushed it through the covers and I came back for two. <laughs> and so, so 102 not out and, um, you know, dad and I had a good laugh about oh, it, but it was very special. Reminds me of the old saying, there's only one way to beat Collingwood and that's by one point. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> As I mentioned at the start, when you were eight years old, you started to get quite mysteriously ill. What were you noticing was wrong? Yeah. Uh, throughout the year of 1996, there was glandular fever, there was flus and colds and, you know, gastro bugs and just things that, that had hampered a, a, you know, a normal year. Um, you know, sport was still happening and school was still happening, but there was, you know, just missed days just for feeling unwell. And it got to the 13th of October, which is was my eighth birthday. And then you did, like every good eight-year-old did, was have the McDonald's party and get the ice cream cake and, you know, of fish. do the macarena and have yeah. a fillet of fish. And, and then the next day, it hit me like a ton of bricks and mum put it down to too much sugar and, you know, running around too much. And so she organised an appointment at the, at the clinic for the next day. And the morning of the 15th, then, you know, we're downstairs and she's helping me get my shirt up over my head. And as I had my arms up, uh, literally a baseball-sized lump dropped down out of my rib cage on the right-hand side. So, what, under it, your skin? Well, yeah, it physically um, presented itself after raising my arms up above my head and, and this thing literally presented as though it was a half baseball just protruding out of the right side of my stomach. And we both kind of looked at it, a bit shocked, but not really knowing what it was. And this was, you know, 7.30 in the morning. And so we go across to the medical clinic over in Tanambit and, you know, met with the local GP who's looked after us since we were kids. Uh, and uh, he just said, we need to, you know, we need to have a good look at this thing. So from MRI scans to CT scans and blood tests and x-rays and ultrasounds and, you know, poking and prodding and, you know, all sorts of things took us through to about 4.30 in the afternoon. And, you know, having not eaten the whole day, it was pretty exhausted and then, you know, Dr. Everingham walks into the walks into the room and says, you know, your son's got a stage two Wilms tumour on his right kidney and we need to get him to Sydney as quickly as possible. What's a Wilms tumour? Yeah, so a Wilms tumour, well, I suppose I don't know the granular science of it, but it's a, it's a tumour that attaches itself to kidneys. Um, and it, it said it had a 70% cure rate and was fairly you know, a, a malignant tumour, so a, a tumour that's not, it's, it's very different, I suppose, to leukaemia. Uh, it's an actual physical tumour that attaches itself onto the kidney. Is it one that's particularly prevalent in kids? Yes, yes, yeah, which they made us very aware of. They said this is quite a common tumour, um, but where it's up to, it's at a quite an aggressive stage and we need to kind of get onto it. And, yeah, I mean, all of that got unpacked to us and they said we can organise an ambulance this afternoon to get him to Sydney tonight uh, or otherwise you can get him down there. And I straight away said, yeah, let's go on the ambulance. That sounds cool. Um, and... That was it. Like we, we, mum and I, you know, took the information we had. I was surprised that mum kept it together. Um, she stayed quite 
you know, solid about it. And then we got in the car and we were driving back home and we were literally five minutes from home and I shouldn't have, but I did. I turned to mum and I said, am I going to die? And she, um, yeah, she, I think at that point then she cracked and she, that was the first time that I'd really physically seen her emotionally react so, so intensely to it. And so then the the gravitas of that sunk into me. Could she give you an answer to your question? No, no. And, you know, there was padding around it to make sure that, you know, we're going to do everything we can and all, all of this, but, you know, it's new information and, and she's just trying to be positive. But when faced with, ask, with being asked that and now having my own eight-year-old right now and I suppose three other kids um, to have that presented by my daughter who's eight right now, like I would... I'd be a mess. I I don't know how they they were able to do what they did. So we got home and my sister was furious when I walked in because she'd missed out on swimming lessons, uh, and she had the goggles on her head and swimmers on and ready to go. And and dad and, and was it's Josh who's making it all about himself. Yeah, isn't that's he? right. So it's, it's all, all about me, 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 me. <laughs> right. And uh, dad and my sister walked into the living room. Mum was in tears, and then yeah, then that whole journey started. And so we went to Newcastle, the John Hunter Hospital, that night. Um, we we got told to get to Sydney Children's Hospital instead of I suppose what's the what was the old hospital I can't remember but Ramwick Sydney Children's had just been uh, built and literally within a couple of weeks and and it had opened um, and so we went there and that night Professor Vowles we met with Professor Vowles who was an incredible surgeon uh, and he you know took the sharpie and he drew all over my stomach and said here's what we're going to do and made it all as creative and fun as he could um, and that night I was really crook I was you know throwing up I was really unwell and restless and call it nerves or whatever but uh, it just I was just unwell and the next morning they said part of the tumor's uh, broken off and attached itself to your vena cava which is I suppose the big the big jugular that sits alongside your aorta and so they needed to put heart bypass surgery on standby and from there it was going into surgery um to to face a good solid hours uh, of, of trying to get this thing out and they said to us afterwards that the, the tumour that it was on my kidney it was the size of a fully developed baby's head uh, and then the one on my vena cable was 30 watt light globe in size. So they were, they were very solid, um, solid tumours and coming out then I had to go into um, intensive care for a number of days where I was completely out of it and felt like I'd been hit by a bus. Um, because of the shape of the um, the scar that basically I had, it was almost like a shark bite. It starts very low on the bottom left-hand side of my stomach, goes right up just below my diaphragm and then down to the bottom right-hand side. So it's a big triangle. And, yeah, everything everything was pretty tender. So lying there in intensive care, I'm, yep. I'm imagining you're on super powerful painkillers, probably the yeah. most powerful they can give a, a yep. little boy. Yeah. What, what do you remember as that fog of that started to clear and and having a sense and did you have the sense you were going to live after all and and having a sense of where you were and what was around you yeah I can remember looking at mum next to me quite a few times and she was in a very you know I wouldn't say comfortable at all it was just a chair like next to my bed and she hadn't moved for days like she was there every step of the way and I mean oftentimes we always speak to the idea of mum did this and mum was there and this was mum and you know it's all about mum and and absolutely it was but you know my dad 
at the time was running his own small business in the back of our house, trying to maintain a sense of normality for my sister who was only two years older than me, trying to get her to school on time, pack lunches, get organized and do it all without his best friend and partner there to, to, I suppose, I don't know, be there to bring any kind of comfort. He's removed from the situation. So, I felt so your mum was with you? My mum was with me the whole time. And where was she sleeping? Literally in a, in a chair next to me that reclined slightly uh, and had pillows and, and blankets and things. And obviously McDonald, uh, Ronald McDonald House was offered to her and, and beds were offered to her, but she was very much, you know, attached to the, to the hip of my bed, uh, making sure that anything that happened she was there for. Um, you wanted to be near the machine that goes ping? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I haven't talked about this before, but I feel like it's, um, I don't know, it, it, it adds context to the, the, the severity of the situation and the emotion of the situation. Mum um, told me afterwards, you know, she, she felt as if during the night she was, you know, she had a, a moment with somebody in the room um, uh, where she was told that everything's going to be fine and... Um, yeah, like he's going he's gonna to be able to get through it um, and we've got an eye on him and that was it. Did she take comfort from that? Yeah, huge, hugely. Did she tell you that at the time? Um, I, think, I think it was a little while after that she told me but it was, uh, it was a moment that, you, you know, you could genuinely see a sense of relief um, and, and there was, I suppose, a little bit more of a feeling of we're getting, we're getting out of this and we're, we're punching through it and, and yeah. And so it, it was, it's, it's always that feeling, I suppose, if, if you aren't an overly religious person or you don't, you don't carry those beliefs, it is, it is hard to feel connected to that story. But, um, having grown up and going to, going to church every Sunday with mum and dad and doing the choir thing and, and being a part of that community, you, you know, I, I believe every word of what, what mum said and, and I do feel that it was a moment that did help kick on the recovery period of, of that difficult time. In those hospitals, they sometimes bring celebrity visitors <laughs> through the place who came to your bedside while you were in, yeah. in that dreadful state. Yeah, and I, I've only got photos to look at of myself with about half a dozen tubes coming out of my my head, and you know things like that. But you know, you've got Savage Garden there, just um, you know, <laughs> popping in with a with a signed uh, headshot. That's incredibly and, sweet. Um, Did you know who they were at the time? Yeah, I mean, because you're yeah, only yeah. eight. I mean, no, yeah. Cola. That's okay, a cool. classic. Um, the David Campisi and the Randwick Rugby Union team came oh, you, in. You with would a have known who those guys were. Yeah, yeah, and came in with a pair of Dave's shorts, which was pretty fun. We've still got them all signed. Um, yeah, and the most extraordinary was meeting Priscilla Presley. Um, she came to your bed? Yeah. She, well, she came to the, the hospital and she was releasing a new perfume and she was doing the rounds and, <laughs> and, seeing, and seeing the kids in hospital. And, and I was in a state very much of being able to move around, being a little bit more mobile. And uh, I remember being presented with this teddy bear that had an American flag on the T-shirt and on the back it had Priscilla Presley and a big, big X on it. And, yeah, I remember feeling pretty cool about meeting Priscilla Presley. <laughs> and you're in a really strange world here. Lots of very strange things are happening to an eight-year-old kid. Mm. How long were you on chemo for after that? So chemo was uh, just short of two years. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, I mean, post, 
post-surgery, it was two weeks of radiotherapy and then coming back to re- reality of going to and from school. Um, uh, I had two doses of chemo most weeks. Uh, some weeks were just one. And there was two different types of chemo. There was one that was uh, 30 minutes worth um, that was administered over 30 minutes and then another that I remember very, <laughs> very vividly of being wrapped in foil uh, and it was extremely cold because it needed to be kept in the, the fridge or the freezer. And I can remember for three hours feeling, you know, like cold liquid was going into you. And rather than getting uh, the vein found on your arm, I had a portacath in my chest and the portacath attached itself to the tube that went up into your neck and then the chemo kind of went through your went through your system more efficiently that way so they didn't have to find the veins every time. But unfortunately, during the chemo, I suppose... Across those years, um, during one occasion of getting my chemo, the portacath got inserted and and it actually missed the the top of the portacath. And for the best part of an hour and a half, I had a full dose of chemo go into my left arm and uh, it it burnt all the tissue uh, in my left armpit. Um, And it was incredibly painful. And I can remember the pain and I can remember being really uncomfortable but also the I suppose feeling of catastrophizing a situation was made out to feel almost like calm down it's just another batch of chemo it's all good you don't have to be so sad and things and I I don't know how to communicate there's something wrong it's really bad and can you please stop and it was only then you know where they did realize it was it was quite a bad situation that um yeah they they kind of looked looked at what the damage was and that damage then amounted to not being able to use my left arm for the best part of three months, like at all. It was very much a limp, a limp limb that sat on my on my hip for for quite a while. Did, it, did you get a? I mean, you're using your arm. Is it fully recovered? Yeah, there, like but... I mean, if if you if I was to really show you a full extension of raising my hands above my head, my right fingers go higher than my left, but. Uh, it's it's very much a, a minor detail now, but at the time it was required a whole lot of hydrotherapy uh, and phys- physical therapy as well to get get the muscle working again. And during that time of hydrotherapy, I, I met a wonderful woman uh, in East Maitland who who was that hyd- hydrotherapist, and she would bake me cakes and you know try to try to make every occasion that I saw a, a memorable one. And then one week, and I don't want to make this story sound even more disastrous than it is, but tragically she passed away. Um, uh, one week she was camping with her family and, you know, rolled out of a tent into, into the river. And it was incredibly difficult because she made those occasions um, that, that were really hard uh, a lot easier. And to deal with that, then compounding on top of everything else that was going on, ear infections from swimming in the pool and all that sort of stuff and getting your ears flushed out and then chemo and then trying to get school back on track and trying to get sport back on track and, yeah, this is like tricky. Most, this is like a really – maybe this is a really boring and obvious question, mm. but is do, you, is do you see a connection there between this awful ordeal mm. and you becoming a chef, becoming the kind of chef you are in a very – and I think we have to agree you're quite a driven person. Yeah, and I do strongly believe that you get a rocket pack on your back when you go through something like that. And I work off the measure that anything that I want to achieve in life personally and anything that I would like, you know, 
as a family or anything we want to do, like we will 100% do it. There is nothing that is going to stop me from, from achieving what I want to do. So that's something that I've carried with me since probably the age of 10 or 11, probably since I finished the last batch of chemo that I had. I just thought, well, I get to do what I want to do now. <laughs> so, yeah. And did you always know you were going to be a chef? No. Um, and I think it was born from the idea, literally from being driven from school. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, getting picked up by mum at school, driven to the John Hunter Hospital, sitting there with me, doing my chemo, then driving me home to make me lunch, to then drive me back to school and, and finish the day off. And I think, y yes, mothers are meant to play the role of making sure kids are well fed and look after them in sickness and everything. But at the end of the day, there's a woman there who has taken three and a half hours intentional time out of her day um, to provide, you know, that service of getting me there, but also just to stop for half an hour, cook me a meal, be it a sandwich or a soup or a pie or something like that. She's cooked something for me and given me, um, I suppose, comfort in what that meal is. And I think that act of generosity and hospitality and kindness is one of the most significant things you can do for some someone else. And I think that act of hospitality was the catalyst behind why I wanted to be a chef and why I genuinely love to cook for people and why all of our venues will be transparent in the sense that you can see us and we can see you. People who have lives in service mm. to something or other are the happiest people I've interviewed on this show. That's yeah. always been the case. That's one yeah. of the most clear observations yeah. I've had. Service makes you happy, weirdly enough, yeah. working so for other people. Being a chef wasn't born from sitting under a table with grandma making scones or, you know, things like that. It was just genuinely because I love hospitality. And so what did you imagine that life was going to be like as a chef back then? Yeah, I, well, I said to mum and dad when I was 15, are you happy if I finish at year 10 and, and get stuck into a full-time apprenticeship? And, you know, we explored what school-based internships and doing things casually and things would look like, but I was ready to go the whole hog and so I, uh, I stepped into an apprenticeship. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Now, this is a you're a nice Maitland boy who's been playing cricket a lot. Did yeah. you have much experience of fine dining as a kid? No, no not at all. Like I said, the, the the old Endeavour Chinese restaurant on the Pacific Highway was about as formal as it got. So how did you know what to look for? Well, yeah, I mean, when I really locked into this idea of being a chef, then I did my first school-based uh, workplace program um, at the Crown Plaza in the Newcastle, which was very recently opened uh, venue. And I got two days uh, whilst I was at school in year 10 to go see what that was like. And I can remember my feet incredibly painful <laughs> uh, and my back just incredibly sore. And, you know, it, it was full commercial cookery. You needed sharp knives and you needed to kind of fall in and do what you were told. And I just found that exhilarating. And you I, did? Why? Like, because I'm imagining, and mate, this is the cliche, yeah. that it's, it's, a, it's a room, it's very hot, it's full of people shouting while they're doing painstaking <laughs> work and, uh, and to time as well. It's like, get yeah. this happening now. You love that. Yeah, I did. And, and I think uh, there wasn't that immediate sense of, you know, do this, do this, do this, you 
you know, you're, you're a 15 year old boy in, in a very professional environment, uh, and, and you get told to execute certain tasks like, you know, peeling a pineapple ready for the breakfast buffet station and, and taking the tops off the strawberries and silly things like that. But for the two days that I was there, it really solidified to me that I want to be involved in what this looks like on a full-time basis. So, And where did you start once you got a, your first training position? Yeah, so I think anybody that's been to Newcastle knows the Queen's Wharf Brewery, uh, which is the old pub uh, that's got a restaurant there. And there was two chefs there, Elizabeth Box and Anthony Coson, and they wanted to elevate the food offering. So they removed themselves out of that venue um, and they opened a venue called the Brewery Restaurant, which was a, a far more formal dining room. And from there, I saw the job ad in the newspaper. Uh, and yeah, I've made a call and, and we teed up a conversation and they were very, um, very open arms about me joining the team as a first year apprentice, which I think is quite remarkable for, for any business. And how many times did you cut your fingers and burn your fingers? <laughs> Tell you, the worst cut that I've ever had happened in that first few months where I put my knife into a, a block of butter uh, that had been sitting on the bench for an hour before doing it. So the inside was still cold and the outside was just nice and warm. Uh, and I put the knife through and as I pushed down on it, uh, my left hand slid along the length of my knife down to the tip. And then as I pushed down and in, the knife went through my left, just through the muscle in my left thumb. Ow. And uh, foolishly, my chef's come over, ripped the knife out of my hand, said, go sort it out and then come back. And so went to the clinic, got a few stitches, and then back I was sweeping the floor at the end of the night. So, Tell me how you got to meet the kind of well-known Sydney chef Peter Doyle yeah. this time. Well, with the connection to having, having a childhood cancer, I won a scholarship from the Red Kite Foundation, which was formerly known as the Malcolm Sargent Foundation. And they were hosting an event where a Newcastle restaurant would collaborate with a Sydney restaurant to raise money for kids with cancer. And I was receiving that scholarship at the award that would firstly pay for my first set of knives and chef's jacket and all this sort of stuff. So very fitting. Uh, and the restaurant turned out to be Est Restaurant with Peter Doyle. And so we were at Scratchley's um, doing this event uh, and it was quite, you know, amazing that we're, I'm cooking in the same kitchen as Peter Doyle and I've literally got a poster of him in my room at home alongside Shannon Bennett and alongside Warren Turnbull and all these great chefs of that era uh, and I held them in that same rock star status, you know what I mean? So to, to stand alongside him, I was shocked and I went out, told my story on stage and they had a little video playing in the background and I look over at the kitchen and Peter's got tears coming out of his eyes and I was like, oh, wow, okay, you know, and I went back into the kitchen and he said, oh, you know, I'd love it if you could come to Est and have, have a lunch and enjoy yourself and come and see the work we do. And I said, oh, that sounds amazing. Thank you. And you took him up on it? And then, and then I said to my chef that night, I said, chef, can I have the day off tomorrow? And then he said, yeah, yeah, of course. So I wake up early the next morning, get on the train <laughs> from, from Maitland to Sydney. Yeah. And when you think Sydney is a boy from Maitland, you think Central. So you get off at Central and I head to Est. And meanwhile, I've headed to King Street, Newtown, because I forgot that it was the other way. So I get to, <laughs> I get to Est at 10 to 12. I get up through the lift onto level two and I walk out and there's a gentleman there named Ivan and he goes, welcome. And I, very professional. He's looking at a 16-year-old kid that's walked into the restaurant 10 minutes early with no supervising adult with them. And a nasty bandage on his finger. <laughs> yeah, and, say, yeah. and then he said, um, welcome. And I said, oh, thank you. Uh, he goes, do you have a booking? And I said, well, no, Peter Doyle told me to come and have lunch. And he's like, okay, absolutely, come on through. And so, having, really, that worked. Literally, and wow. and so having had 
or having worked at Est in the future, then knowing the seat that I sat on was the best seat in the house. And, you know, from, from midday till four o'clock in the afternoon, I had four hours of some of the most extraordinary, memorable modern Australian food. And Peter's repertoire at that time was quite amazing. So Peter came out at, at midday and said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you told me to come have lunch. And he yesterday. goes, yeah, but yesterday. <laughs> and so it was quite funny. And then at the end of that meal, he came out and he said, would you like to work for us? We'd love to have you, have you join us. And I said, yes. And then I got home and mum and dad said no. And they explained to me, you need to, you need to serve another bit of time with these people that have given you the opportunity in Newcastle. So that was good advice. Um, and It I, was? Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah, okay. It wasn't. No, it okay. was. Um, but they, I told my chefs in Newcastle, can you get me ready for, for going to Sydney? Can you start planning towards I need to get myself organised to go? And they did that. And uh, six months later, I called Peter Doyle and I said, Pete, I'm ready for that job now. And he said, well, we just won Restaurant of the Year, Chef of the Year and Three Hats and everybody wants to work here, so bad luck. And so from that stage then, I'd, I'd been eating out in Sydney every most weeks during that year and so I was... What do you mean, like getting on the train again? Yeah. Going down to Sydney? Yeah. I'd and take, and what, you're not even 18, so are you drinking mineral water with you, the, yeah, all these meals? Yeah, I'd have the 10-course tasting menu with uh, tap water, thanks. Um, and you're this kid sitting alone in these, yeah. these high-end restaurants eating this glorious food. Yeah. Right, but that's fantastic. And this was how I developed a rapport with people like Matt Moran and Guillaume Brahimi and Warren Turnbull and Colin Fastnage and all these great chefs of that era. I was watching them in their prime and they were probably watching me thinking what's this kid doing here and um one of those meals was at glass brasserie and and i um sat there for the duration of lunch luke came out and sat at my table and said luke mangan yeah, yeah. Right. and and he said to me um are you a chef and i said well yeah and then he said well, what are you doing like how's lunch are you enjoying everything and i said yeah i'd love to work here you know and he gave me a trial and and from there i i ended up working at at Glass Brasserie and had a, had a great time there. And what, what does that involve working behind in the scenes yeah. in a restaurant like that? I mean, we, you know, a lot of people like me have seen that series, The Bear, yeah. have some ideas of what a kitchen might or might not be. Yeah. E- either that frenetic shouting, mm. a lot of palaver carrying on, or that kind of awful gut-freezing tension and silence. Yeah. Um, what was it, what's, what's the truth of it? Well, this, yeah, the truth of Glass was very much, this was, the, this was my birth into fire very much. I was leaving Sydney as a solo person, no, no, no one else living, living by myself and age 17, walking into a kitchen that was 350 seat dining room or 300 seat dining room. Um, you know, most lunches we do about 320 people and then dinner, we turn it on for probably 400. And I was one of probably 24 chefs that worked on a larder section, a pastry section, fish and meat, and, you know, everybody had their roles and, you know, it, it was incredibly physical, um, you know, from yes, the, the shouting and the yelling to communicate in a, in a kitchen that was enormous, uh, to forgetting to get your pots and pans from downstairs and needing to run down there quickly and then bring it back up, um, making a hundred kilos of mashed potato in the morning and then needing another 50 kilos in the afternoon. And, you know, to even people playing silly, well, doing silly things like getting rid of all of your prep in the cool room, uh, so that you have nothing for the next day and then walking into an empty cool room and needing to start again. Um, there was all those things that happened and, you know, yeah, you'd cop an earful most days, and it was yeah, there. There is 
the strike rate of chefs that kind of came in and out was, you know, you, you'd see some people that came in that just didn't didn't cut the, yeah. the mustard. Well, just to fast forward a bit, you yeah. started working, you were hired to work at a top-tier fish restaurant called Fish Face. <laughs> yeah. And you started working there. How about how did that go for you? Uh, yeah. your first shift at that. Well, restaurant? the best, yeah, the best way to sum up my my time at Fish Face was really in the trial, um, which was I was told to stand behind Stephen in the kitchen, and Stephen Hodges uh, was opening oysters and putting in dockets on the till, uh, and then we had a sushi chef next to us on our right, uh, and he responsible sushi sashimi and most of the very traditional Japanese dishes, and then a head chef uh, cooking uh, and plating the main courses and hot entrees and then a girl in the corner on the deep fryer and doing pastry and larder. So it was a very organised kitchen. There was nowhere else to go. Your arms had to make movements like an octopus, like up, down, side to side, and nobody had to take a step one way to the other. It was perfectly set up to do what they do. And Fish Face at Darlinghurst was an incredibly popular restaurant. It was a Sunday night. There was a line out the door. 5.30, the gates opened, everybody got their seat and literally within 10 minutes, all of the dockets were in. And it was two dockets in that I noticed, you know, the manager pick up a plate of food off a gentleman that then brought it back to the kitchen. And the manager said to the chef, you know, the fish is raw, like you need to go again. And this would be fine if it was just the one docket that he was doing, but obviously he's doing 15 other dockets. And that was met with some hostility in the form of picking the plate up and throwing it against the wall uh, to the left, which is then the girl on the left has ducked to avoid getting a mouthful of fish. Uh, and the plates then turned into powder and the fishes kind of exploded across, you know, the bench and all of that. The, you know, Steve's probably had a chuckle thinking, oh, well, get on with it. Like, let's keep going. Uh, and then the chef's kind of given the manager a mouthful and then it's turned out that the manager is actually the partner of Stephen and then Stephen gives the chef a mouthful and so everybody's at each other and I'm watching all of this un- unfurl. Uh, and This is in your first hour of this yeah, brand this is, new job. Yeah, this is a trial. Right. Uh, and then the, the chef throws his tongs and his apron down on the bench, tells people where to go, grabs things and leaves. And then Stephen leaves behind him, the manager leaves behind him and then the three of them now are outside. Um, and I'm staring down the barrel of all of these dockets in in a one-hatted, beautiful restaurant that I admire so much, uh, and I, it's been a desire to want to work there and and be around Stephen because of his incredibly, you know, highly skilled technical approach to fish. And I'm watching this thing come apart. The girl who's in the corner is now hugging her bin and in tears um, because she's just avoided, you know, disaster. Uh, the guy on the sushi chef, the, the sushi chef in the corner hasn't moved. He's still just slicing his fish, carrying on as though nothing's happened. Right, he's seen it before. Yeah, he's just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and uh, I'm so I'm looking at these set of tongs and a tea towel on the bench. And I'm like, righto. I know how to do this. And so having had a couple of meals at Fish Face leading up, I had an understanding of what was expected, what the standard was, uh, and, and I put it together the best I could. So I cooked for the next hour and a bit and it was probably the most exhilarating, addictive service that I've ever cooked because the tangible outcome of putting a raw product into a fry pan and then plating it up and then giving it to a guest the guests looking at it going, wow, this is delicious. And then physical reaction to walk over and go, 
thank you so much. That was delicious. We had a great night. And then they leave. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and you, know? you have no idea. And you have no idea. What's just and, happened. And, but yeah. they love the theatre, right? right? Everybody knew going to Fish Face, there'd be a bit of theatre. There'd be a bit of action, you know what I mean? And so that was the action that night. And I basically, you know, everybody came back in. Steve, manager, the chef came back in arm in arm, best mates, came over to me and said, how'd you go? And I said, oh, you know, I, th- I think I did a good job. I hope everything was all right. And then Steve said, do you want the job? And I said, well, Yeah. Yeah, I do. And so I took the job. A couple of days later, the chef ended up leaving. And and by default, then I was responsible for the food that was leaving the kitchen. Um, Well, it's taken me a while to get here. But tell me how a couple of experiences in Mm. in this job upended all your ideas about what fish was, how it should be kept, presented Mm. and and served and cooked and eaten. Yeah. So uh, one night during the clean down at Fish Face, which would extend itself into the early hours in the morning. Stephen was making his brulees that he became very famous for making, and this was at one in the morning. Uh, And in a fairly lucid state that he doesn't remember really talking to me much (laughs) about it at the time, I was expressing to Steve my difficulties towards selecting garnishes that were coherent with the fish species that was in front of me. And I said, how do you pair up things properly so that you do justice to how good these fish are? And he goes, well, why don't you think of fish more as meat? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, tuna kind of looks like like a cow, right? You could cook it like beef. You know how to cook beef, don't you? And then from there, he rattled off swordfish as a pig. He rattled off mahi-mahi like, you know, a roast piece of lamb. He said, you know, pigeon was almost like a mackerel or a bonito. And so, you know, there's no cognitive ability at that age or time where you can just piece all that together into this magical, you know, plan. But it it was an eye-opening thing that he said, and I wrote it all down in my book. And then the second occasion was the same kind of thing. I was cleaning down at the end of the night. I foolishly made the mistake of not packing my fish away. And so there was a fish, um, there was 15 portions of fish on a tray that were left exposed to the fan in the fridge. And I got a mouthful the next morning saying, why didn't you pack it away? And I said, I've missed it. I'm sorry. And so then the decision was, well, do we keep it or do we you know, do we throw it out? Like what's, what's the, what's the thought? So I made the decision. Let's, let's keep it because there's no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just aesthetically not as moist as what we would usually work with. So I'm working with this fish that's dry skinned and feels far more fatty and rich than what it, what it would usually be. And so I put it into the fry pan and the skin puffs off the fish, like pork crackling, a big bubble pops up and I'm looking at this thing like this is unbelievable and this is the crunchiest skin I've ever cooked. The people eating it are like, wow, this is amazing. But I never told Stephen like that, you know, uh, like I I never said let's dry the fish skin now, like let's just do it like that. Again, I just wrote it in my book and moved on and I just thought, well, it's almost like cheating. If you're starting with skin that's a little bit more dry, then you're putting it into a hot fry pan full of hot fat, then you're going to get a better outcome. You put a wet fish in a hot fry pan full of fat, it's likely going to stick, you know, it's just, it makes more logical sense. Like like beef, like That's, beef would if you did that yeah. with beef, right? Or roast, like think about Peking duck. Like there's all this conditioning and planning and processing with regards to getting the skin dry so that when you put it in an oven, it goes crispy. And so if you were to give that duck a quick spritz with water just before it went into the oven, it wouldn't be as crisp. And so, again, that was, you know, another thing that I wrote down and then come 2016 – when Julie, my wife, and I opened St. Peter, there was very much this awareness, this frontline awareness that we're working with a highly fragile, um, 
highly laborious, expensive protein that is fish. And if I'm going to get my first invoice back from fish that says that I've just spent $5,000 to turn this restaurant on just with fish alone, it makes absolutely no sense to put $2,500 of this bill in the bin. And that's what we do on a daily basis in a Western kitchen. There's very little reverence towards let's use the stomach, let's use the, the heart or the liver. Uh, so we go to all the trouble of cutting out the fillet. That's right. We and take then throwing our, the rest of the fish away. That's right. We take our 15 by 6 centimetre rectangle out of the middle and then we move on. And, yeah, sure, you can make some fish stock and you can do bits and pieces with the collars and things, but where's the luxury and where's the reverence within those parts that encourages the consumer to want to purchase it and see it as being as valuable as the fillet because inevitably the bone, the organs and all the bits and pieces, they're not cheaper than the rest of the fish. They carry the exact same monetary value. And so this is where it all started. The the costs associated with the work we were doing didn't make sense until we started using more of the fish. So when you say using more of the fish, yeah. you're talking a lot of the time about offal, fish yes. offal. What kind of things have you found you can do with fish offal? Or is this something you've discovered or there are, it's been done in cooking traditions yeah. from elsewhere? Because my, my wife's Singaporean yes. born and she totally is into cooking the whole fish yeah. and thinks this whole thing of taking fillets out is mad as well. So, so what, do you, what have you been able to do yeah. with that fish offal and the other parts of the fish? Yeah. I think firstly it's, it is poignant to say that, you know, culturally this has been done um, all over the world and, and for reasons born sheerly out of necessity first and foremost. But then All the best food comes from, star- from famine. That's right. Starvation, you know, like, well, let's try this then, you know, since well, we're all starving y- to death. Even if you think about, mm. you know, caviar, it's born from fish offal, the, the eggs of a fish, basically, getting yeah. produced into something that's highly luxurious and beautiful. And oysters aren't pretty. No. The first person, as it said, <laughs> who ate the first oyster was a brave person, but Absolutely. then found it was pretty tasty after all. So for us, you know, there was information at hand with regards to, yes, you know, there's parts of Japan that celebrate, you know, texturally... I suppose from a, a, a Western approach, from a boy from Maitland, I would never saddle up and celebrate the texture of eyes or I would never saddle up to the, the fish sperm or shirako in Japan. Like those things carry such fishy connotations and softness and creaminess and all those things. So how is it that we can transform and modify these offal of a fish into something that we can feel nostalgically close to, which is then why we've interpreted many different parts of the fish in different ways. One of them being we make ice cream out of the vitreous humor from a fish eye, which is to to basically replace the yolks taken from an egg from a chicken. Um, And, you know, we've made foie using the liver of John Dory. We've gone and made uh, pat- like pâtés, terrines, sausages. And sausages, yeah. Chorizos and... Um, so when you put these, these fish guts in a sausage, but you, you, that's a form most of us are familiar with and are pretty happy Absolutely. to eat a snack. I mean, when people go up to fish butchery in Paddington or out at Waterloo and pick up their couple of fish sausages, it's far more aesthetically pleasing to interpret what that is as opposed to then what those products would be if they were sitting on a plate. So. You mentioned the, the whole idea about keeping this need to keep fish moist. Yes. When we go to fish markets, yes. we see fish lying on ice mm. that often glistens with moisture. Mm. What's the mistake that's going on there? Well, I mean, if we think about it from a scientific point of view, all fish have an organic compound in them called trimethylamine. And when a fish dies, it converts into trimethylamine oxide. And then upon poor management of that trimethylamine oxide and the conversion starting to happen where it starts to convert into ammonia, 
then that's what we refer to when we're talking about fishy fish. So when people come in and say, what's your least fishy fish? They're not referring necessarily to mackerel or bonito or things that have stereotypically been fishy. What they're talking about is what's the one with the least amount of ammonia onset on it? Hang on, are you saying to me that that, that watery spray that's being sprayed, is that causing the fishy fish? Well, if we, if we like? well, think about it from this way. With osmosis, if you're putting fresh water onto a saltwater product, as the fresh water moves through the membrane of the saltwater product, it's trying to find an equilibrium, which is then basically making the salt product less salty. The cells are starting to fill with fresh water. And as they fill with fresh water, they, they get to a breaking point where they actually rupture. And then the fresh water then basically collapses the the structure of the flesh of the fish and then that residual moisture that's left <laughs> within the fillet is then where bacteria is harboured and begins to grow because if we think about it this way, if you go into a butchery and you look at the strip loin of, you know, a, a piece of beef strip loin on the bench with bone in and then we want a couple of sirloin steaks. We take the knife, we draw it along, we take the sirloin off, we dip it into a pool of water, we bring it onto the cutting board, we take a slice of sirloin, we dip it in water again and then we go and we put it on ice. How long is it, do you think, until that meat goes rancid or slimy or sticky or begins to even have an odour? And then also, how is it then that you'll be able to take that wet piece of beef and put it onto a barbecue and achieve beautiful caramelization and browning and all this sort of thing? When really, when you think about it, it's probably going to stick and you're going to need a, a good shovel to dig it up off the grill bars, which and, is and again... It's, and it's the same with fish? This, this is what we have with fish, basically. And, you know, to my point around ammonia, the only way you mitigate ammonia is through the use of acidity, which is why we've got centuries of knowledge, especially from the French repertoire, repertoire that suggests that we put a half a lemon with our fish and why we have hollandaise sauce with our smoked salmon and why we have tartare sauce with our fish and chips. They're all acidic garnishes getting ready for the imminence of odours. That have been caused to some degree by spraying water on them. Correct. In the, and in the shop. To me, it's just foolish. It's, it's dumb logic, basically, to suspend a fish in a state of mediocrity on ice and then every 20 minutes walk along and give it a quick spray so it all, like magically looks as if it's just come out of the water again. Because when you get home and you unwrap your plastic and your paper and you, you, you smell that fish, it <laughs> is going to smell like fish. Sorry, just the whole idea that anxiety about that fishy smell mm. is the very thing that's leading to practices that create that fishy smell. Correct. So like I said, like it's, it's almost like if our car's dirty, we wash it. So if a fish has scales on it, like think about the practice. We scale a fish, we wash it. We gut a fish, we wash it. We fillet a fish, we wash it. And then it goes on ice and you take it home and expect to have some kind of amazing romantic time with this fish and have a good outcome. It's never going to be the case. And the best experiences we've ever had with fish usually happen on the back of the boat. When we've first caught the fish, we take a slice of it, we eat some sashimi or we grill it on the boat or do whatever we need to do and it'll be removed of that fishy odour because nobody's had their hands on it. Nobody's ruined the beautiful state that it could have been in. So, See, I'm only just now, just now, mm. beginning to grasp the perversity Mm. with which we treat fish and cook fish mm. in, in, in this country and elsewhere. This is global. Like there is no fish market in the world that practices any kind of dry handling. Everything is done under running water. How receptive is the world, the rest of the world, to hearing what you have to say, Josh? Yeah, I, 
I feel very fortunate there's a captive audience within, I suppose, the, the community of chefs around the world that, that were very attracted to the words written in the Whole Fish Cookbook and, and were, I suppose, from a creative and innovative point of view, they were celebratory to the idea of dry aging and through utilising the whole fish. But at times, um, obviously, it's met with hesitation across uh, the, I suppose, broader industry space because what I'm suggesting is, you know, we should be able to achieve the outcome of two fish from one fish and we should be able to have a longer shelf life with a fish that extends past day three and four. But this basically complicates the profitability um, and margin that lies within fish. Josh, this has been completely fascinating conversation. <laughs> We've squished so much into an hour and it's been such a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.